Well, I just noticed a mistake already. I've just introduced you as Jamie Ru- Russo on that intro. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Hi, Jamie. How you doing? I'm all right, mate. <laughs> oh, man, I've been wanting to do this for such a long time after seeing, like, your meteoric rise over this last year and playing, I guess, a little small part of it by being part of Visualize Value as well. Um, it's just so nice to actually sit down and chat with you for an hour. Likewise, man. Yeah, it's been a while. Glad we got it on the books. And I've got, so I've got an American drink. You got it's a bit early for a whiskey over your side, isn't it? A little bit, mate. Yeah, and, it's, uh, and a tea. Yeah, one o'clock. That's how you do it. I got a little <laughs> carbonated beverage over here. So, how's things? How's your life now? Good, mate. Stuff's good, mate. Just uh, settling into. Um, the domestic or the more domestic lifestyle in Nashville. We were in Brooklyn for almost 10 years. So we were in a 450 square foot apartment, Celia and I, and we just moved to a four bedroom house in Nashville. So life has been a bit different the last four months or so getting out, uh, getting outside, no longer in an apartment building and stuff. So it's been, it's been a nice little transition the last few months. Is it a slower life? You think? Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Just, um, kind of the, the things that used to be a half day exercise are now, you know, 20 minutes long. Like you want to go and get your weekly shop in Brooklyn. It's a subway, it's a trolley down five sets of stairs back up is yeah. So here is like car garage, different game entirely. Sounds a little bit like a uh, Yorkshire in the UK. It's just slower. Mm. Everybody's friendly and it's just nice. It's definitely a different vibe. Yeah, there's pros and cons so, to each. <laughs> I I don't think I've got to introduce you. Everybody knows who Jack Butcher is. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. I have conversations with people who aren't who aren't even part of Visualize Value, and they know who you are. And I th- I think to set some context, I I think I discovered you probably early 2020 last year, maybe. Uh, I don't know, February or something. And mm-hmm. can you remember how many Twitter followers you had back then? Maybe a couple of thousand or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I can't remember, but around there, yeah. And so, so you were, people were aware of you. And around that time, you had the Daily Manifest product. And yeah, I think way more focused on just the uh, shipping the artwork back then on Instagram. So I think, um, sort of Instagram. Uh, took over or, or was at least a, more time was spent on that side when we started to get traction there and Twitter was kind of, you know, the secondhand platform where I was like, yeah, I may as well post there as well. And I, I think you would have been pretty much full-time designer then, I guess, you know, the classic designer. Uh, yeah, I think, uh, well, agency... Uh, in inverted commas, like had freelance clients um, doing February last year, probably some video jobs, some web design stuff, some presentation design, a uh, little bit of everything, like a faux agency type setup early last year. And, and and this was around when I first discovered the front end of visualized value, which isn't the now classic white on black images. Um, mm-hmm. How would you describe it? The front end of visualized value anyway. 
So originally it was actually a lead gen tool for consulting clients for design work. So it just, it began as, um, how can I produce something, put it out, uh, to attract people that don't know they need this service, right? So how can you take an idea, give it some visual context? It was a process that I'd sort of stumbled on by accident in the design and consulting work where the presentation itself or the, um, the ability to communicate what we were doing and why we were doing it was actually the most valuable part of the process, but nobody was actually paying us for that in the corporate world, at least that's kind of the price of entry. And I think you probably have experienced that too in the agency world where you make presentations to win work, you don't sell presentations. So the first iteration of our agency business was exactly what we'd come from, which is, you know, we'll pitch for work and we'll do whatever's asked of us. And then, about six months into that, it was, uh, the, had a realization like this is totally unsustainable unless you staff up and you know, get yourself some space and hire a bunch of people to, to take care of all these like nondescript requests and all this like scope creep and all of that kind of stuff. So just focusing down on that, that one, um, service, which visualizing value came out of like finding that niche in the service business. It's like, how do you visualize your value? Then how do you scale that? How do you get that out to more clients? Well, posting slides of supply chains and like AI software and marketing strategies is not something that the majority of people care about or are going to share or are interested in. So the insight was how do we take the same methodology and lay it on top of ideas that people value or I value personally. And, you know, just by extension, hopefully other people will be interested in it too. And then, you know, that became a, a great front end um, funnel for consulting clients. And then eventually, you know, you, you have too much interest and you can keep up with uh, as, you know, selling time on, on consulting projects. Then, it, then we started to play with consumer face and stuff, the daily manifest, all of that kind of that direction. Well, I think really the, the visualized value stuff, either on Instagram or Twitter, the images so they're, they're kind of illustrating in, in very simple forms, classic quotations or stoicism or, or things like that. That started to take quite a life of its own, didn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's really interesting about that is that it, 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 proves, it proves this idea. I, I was chatting to it with somebody the other day. Uh, this idea of a, a daily portfolio or this idea of producing content every day and putting it out in public. And I don't I don't know I don't know whether there's a business that doesn't benefit from that. Finding a piece of small mm-hmm. piece of what you do and putting it out every day. What do you think about that? Oh you you've proved yeah, it. Yeah, I think yeah, I think there's I think there's definitely um there's definitely a benefit there and I think it depends a little bit on the nature of the business. One of the things that taught me that was this daily UI challenge. You familiar with that? Um, It's just a, yeah, simple um, landing page. You put your email address in, it just sends you a design brief every day. And this was in my transition from, um, I think I was actually still employed full time when I started working on that. And I think what that process really taught me is like, wow, if you like, if you do this intentionally, you're 
capable of a lot more than you think you are, right? If you time box yourself to X and you have a specific brief, then um, you just, I think it's very similar to like the biological process of working out, right? The muscle um, retains its strength and gets stronger through like this um, continuous exposure to stress versus uh, I notice this, I'm sure you do too. It's if I take two, three, four, five days off something, the yeah. fifth day is so much harder to pick it back up than the, the first or the second. So uh, finding a format that allows you to practice in some way, shape or form every day and produce something as a practitioner, I think that's valuable. And obviously as a business, like just for your connection with the people you want to be connected with, your relevance or things of that nature, there's a benefit there too. Yeah, just I think there's something when you stop doing a small part of your job every day, whatever kind of practice it might be, you might be a, a guitar a guitar teacher and you're noodling on a guitar every day. Whenever you stop, whenever you stop doing it every day, there's like this distance from the skill, isn't there? And it, if you kind of settle into an idea of maybe doing it every couple of days, this is what at least what I've experienced. As the distance increases, you kind of you lose connection with it, e- e- even though that the practice could be the same. You could be spending a Sunday doing four hours versus every day doing a little bit, and it adds up to the same amount of time. But there's just something immediate about doing it every day. Yeah, agreed. And I think for better or worse, the feedback loop that exists from publishing is also a um, also plays a big role in this. And I think finding something that you can get that feedback from that you're personally interested in and you can sustain is kind of a cheat code in that respect, right? It gives you this input that, um, that just encourages you to keep doing it. You're almost competing against yourself in that way when you can measure it the same as you push for a personal best when you go and work out. It's like, I want to, you know, make things that resonate and like I said, there's ups and downsides to that because you can quite easily get into this um, this routine of um, being pulled in a direction maybe you didn't set out to, to go in that way. But I think practiced intentionally, that's definitely a part of it that I wouldn't, I can't ignore. There's definitely some incentive there to to continue when you're getting feedback from people. What do you think about that best idea? Because I've asked quite a few people, well, I put a tweet out saying, does anybody want to ask Jack any questions? Uh, And obviously loads of people wanted to ask questions. And the one thing that came back from quite a few people is a thing that I get asked a lot as well, is this idea of quality versus quantity. And I I noticed then when you, you said about best, about doing something better than you did yesterday, whatever way that might mean to you, is... What do you think about that? Doing your best or doing enough, mm-hmm. especially when you're doing it every day? Yes, yeah, I think it's uh, it's a very difficult question to answer. I know for a fact that like consistent, like consistency, just pure brute force is going to make you a better practitioner at certain things. Like if you're writing or designing, um, you're putting something onto paper. I think it's very difficult to argue that not that that doing that less is going to make you better. I just don't think that's true, but I think there is a, there's definitely, 
there's definitely nuance when you think about the upside of publishing an asset that takes you a hundred days to create. Right. So I think, you know, Eric Jorgensen is wrote the uh, Almanac of Naval. He's got a great idea. He says, you don't decide to make a book, what to write a book once you decide to make a book a thousand times. So it's every time you wake up and commit to that project again, it's a, it's a conscious decision to keep going. And I think, some things can't be produced in a day. So it is about finding that balance too, where it's like you have your like maintenance muscle and then maybe there is, there are these bigger projects, these bigger undertakings where you have this like blockbuster approach where, you know, you're adding to it over time. Maybe there's ways to release that into the market and get feedback. But um, I think in some cases, you know, people who are writing scientific thesis or, you know, building a physical product, like shipping something new every day is kind of a, uh, it sounds like an impossibility, but that doesn't mean there isn't a, there isn't some vehicle that you can use to produce something every day, right? Whether it's one thing that came out of what you learned while you wrote 300, 300 iterations of a page. Um, I think there's, there's balance there and like every subject and every maxim that you read on Twitter that's been condensed to 200 characters, there's probably some nuance that lies behind it that isn't going to be like an absolute rule for every single case. Yeah, I, I think what the way that you've done it with visualized value is that you've had a daily portfolio, a daily project, but then you've you, you've leveraged the fact that you're doing something every day to keep people, to keep you top of mind to release a bigger product that doesn't take a day. I think that's a really powerful methodology behind it. And I often wonder if you wouldn't have had the daily project, be it either tweeting or be it visualized value, would would that have even given you permission to do the bigger project? I don't know. Yeah, I think it de-risks it for sure. So um, the daily project, I think there's two ways to think about what you get from that. And this is um, something I've tried to spend some time thinking about where the daily practice, I think, to refer back to that UI challenge. I think I posted those things on Twitter. That was maybe four or five years ago. And I'm sure that each of them got seven impressions or something crazy, but I became a much better practitioner at my full-time job because I was doing that. And I was just, just a mechanism to keep myself accountable. Um, but I think the balancing act, like you say, is, Yes, you can go down the rabbit hole and produce a product and do eight hours of deep work a day for four months, but then you come to market and you have no distribution to put that thing in front of people and ask them what they think. Uh, so it's kind of a tough thing to hear, but it's like you, can't, you have to it, you have to either borrow distribution or you have to make it. That's really the like those are the two options you have and. In my case, I didn't have anybody to borrow it from or I wasn't smart enough to figure out a way to borrow it from someone else. So I had to build it myself. And how long did it take you to get to the visualized value thing? You mentioned the daily UI things. How long were you trying before that came around? So I had uh, like, I, qu- I quit my job in 2017, the end of 2017. And uh, because I had a big corporate client that um, I used to work with in one of my old jobs that had committed to work with me as like my new agency. So that was like the life raft. I was doing like freelance stuff on the side while I was working full time, then signed this one client. 
and then um, just constantly trying to punch my way out of that like service business model and tried a bunch of different iterations, uh, like a recruiting, like uh, a branding agency focused solely on recruiting, like building websites for recruiters, uh, podcast content agency, um, then visualize value as the consulting methodology was like, that's where I thought I was going to stop and end up like, I'm, you know, uh, reasonably good at this and I think I can generate interest in it. So that feels like a good fit. And then, um, I think the real unlock was the, you know, what's the vehicle to get this out to people beyond just your, you know, your one-on-one customers that are gonna, you know, you're going to spend 20, 30 hours a week with, um, and that like little catalyst of being able to package it up and build a bit of equity in the fact that it's, you know, there's some consistent visual, um, component to it is it's easy to go back in hindsight and say, yeah, that was exact. I intended that all along. I think there's definitely, uh, things you learn in an agency environment where it's like, how do, how do people remember brands? And I'm sure you've been there. It's like studying brand guidelines. Like this has to be this far from here and has to be this font and you have to use this color. And uh, as a designer, you know, in the early days of my career, I was like, what I want, like, I don't want to follow these rules. I want to make my own thing. I can do a better version of this. And I realized like how much energy I spent pushing back against the wrong things earlier in my career. And then, you know, lent into the things that I'd resisted for a long time that were, had been codified by people who had been around longer than me and they work. Well, the, the thing that as a young designer, you don't, you don't want to hear, but you know, it works is repeating the same thing over and over and over builds brand. And that, that, yep. that goes for a design style that goes for words, whatever. That's how you build a trademark or, or whatever. And I th- I think that's really what you got to with visualized value and you you really put your ego aside as a designer to just do it. Yeah, I think uh it's it's also the the environment that it sets up to just stop you um like swirling when you go back to the canvas I think is helpful too because I was doing kind of versions of this as, um, as I was building the agency business, I was like taking notes from books and going to, uh, events, like trying to meet people who are building, uh, similar businesses. And I'd always take notes and then I'd like, Oh, what can I do with this? I could turn this into some sort of poster or take this idea and present it in a way and give it back to the group that I just went to the event with. So I did a little bit of that, but I'd always do a different like visual approach. And I noticed I was just spending an hour messing about with color composition pattern, like finding images, things of that nature. And I was like, I think um, realizing that the style component of it is really the least valuable um, and putting the constraint on myself to be like, to communicate more with uh, here are the, here are the, here are the tools you have to use. Like you can't move outside of this toolbox if you need to, then that's like a failure on your part. Uh, if you're like looking for a stylistic way to solve the problem, you aren't really solving the problem. You're just sort of like, uh, I don't know, polishing a turd, I suppose, is one of the ways to say it. <laughs> you're just moving shapes around, aren't you? 
right basically right. yeah you're completely Indeed. you're completely right that the whole idea of being a designer is to communicate something and when you remove everything else and you give yourself such harsh restrictions like what you did with vv that all of a sudden increases creativity a million times doesn't it because you you're just not thinking you're not thinking about what what kind of font to use you've already decided not even thinking about weight weight of a line not even thinking about what shapes you're going to use you already know it yeah it just increases the creativity like tenfold yeah i think there's probably a, re- a very elegant story you could uh drop in here but i think that's like a part of the human condition right it's like when you're in a corner you just think way more creatively uh the more constraint you have on you uh it just forces these uh you know, I guess the wheel was invented for that reason. It's like people dragging stuff through the mud for a long time. But once you have that one thing that works, it's like, why deviate from this? Like, let's just keep using it. So, so is that what it was? Was it desperation? Is that why you were trying to find a way out of the agency model, quote unquote? I think, yeah, I think there's a, definitely an element of it. You, you project out like what your life's going to look like. 10, 20 years from now, if you stay down the same path. And I was really noticing my energy dwindling. So like I could brute force my way through a creative challenge when I was 25 or, you know, 23, 24, you could just sit there for 14 hours a day in front of a computer and just make iteration after iteration and client feedback round after client feedback round. And, um, I think I just could sort of project out, man, I'm not like, I don't think I'm getting more energy here. I don't think I can just brute force my way through, through a lot of these problems. So you either have to pay other people to help you solve those problems, or you have to drastically limit your focus. And yeah, it was, it was, I think, uncomfortable for a long time because I was just, I was just pursuing things that I thought people would want, not necessarily things that I wanted to do. And they all failed. Like, you know, let's, I've got experience in this industry. So I'm going to specialize in this. Um, my first client, uh, was a big car brand and I'm a, I'm a like huge car enthusiast. And I thought, Oh, this is it. I'm out. This is what I'm going to get stuck into. We're going to be like automotive marketing. And, I love cars, but the work of marketing a car launch and like dealing with companies of the size that are necessary to produce cars is not something you want to do as an individual. So just like, bang, that dream is dead. There's no way to like repackage your expertise to find a, you know, one person shop that makes cars doesn't exist. So it's like, it's all of these different things. I think you learn in different situations and, try and reverse engineer something that is um, like really cognizant of your abilities, your preferences, your like uh, your strengths and weaknesses. I'm not a great manager of people. And I think I maybe brute my force way into getting there, but it's like, why, what, if you don't want to do it, why would you do it? I think um, in a different situation, maybe I would have had to break through that barrier and, now would be on the other side of it, but uh, it's really just been a process of like trying to really lean into the things that were um, 
that we're working and ruthlessly eliminate what isn't, even if there are economic opportunities associated with those things. And that's been the hardest thing in the last few years is saying no to stuff that five years ago, I'd have been like, this is, this is going to completely change my life or this is like a massive project. Um, that's, that's been the most difficult part, I think. I think that <clears throat> that's the thing with designers, isn't it? And it's not unique to designers. It's, it's, it's pretty much, well, the thing that you say, divorcing your time from income. It's any job where your, your job is uh, attached to your time. And y- you have this illusion that it, in another few years, it'll be better. And in another few years, it'll be better. And you think, well, I'll be better in a few years. I'll be quicker. But what you end up finding is that you get quicker and better. And what that means is you take on more work. So you never, yeah. it's like this pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that you never see. And you just keep taking on more work. And before you know it, and because inherently designers want to work with big brands and stuff like that, it's just an ego thing. You're like working with these amazing brands and it's mega stressful and you realize that you're like making no money from it. You might be turning over a couple of million, but you're making no money right, from right. it. Yeah, I mean, I've, I sort of saw the belly of the beast in big like ad agencies in New York. And even those guys would take a loss on the projects that are the sexiest, right? To retain your design talent, to push out your portfolio, to, you know, get in the rooms with people that you want to be seen in rooms with. And then you make all your money doing like banner ads for some like <laughs> cell phone provider. Right. And, and that's like just the sad truth of that industry is like the work that pays the most is the work that nobody wants to do. It's just like a supply and demand equation at the end of the day. Like, well, yeah, we could lose this client, but someone else will swoop in and the, and the sexy clients know this too. They can like completely leverage, like you want to put our logo on your website. You're going to do this for peanuts. Yeah. So uh, that was uh the, the the incentives are just really bizarre in that world, time and materials, and uh, it's really hard to measure success. And just seeing that was like, I knew I didn't want to recreate it, but somehow I got into the situation where I was like on that trajectory and like just pulled the ripcord before, uh, you know, committing to anything too crazy in that world. So, so how did you pull back from it? Because obviously you were a designer for a long time. Well, you still are. You still are a designer, but uh, a, a job in designer, like what, seven, eight years or something, working for agencies. Yeah, about eight years. So that's it's your identity, isn't it? It's the only thing that you know, and you are a designer, and it's just the way it is, and you accept it. How did you pull back from it and say, right, this isn't the way I want it? Because it's a brave decision. That it's it's brave to do it. Hmm. I think it's, uh, I think a lot of it is maybe a lot of it came from like taking or taking on responsibilities that weren't mine in some of those environments too, where, um, not willing to just be the person who makes this thing pretty and shoves the slides in order at the end of the deck. I think the curiosity to like understand why somebody is paying for this and like what this business is for and how we're adding value to client X was always something that was like 
just nagged me in all of those situations. I'm just like, why are we doing this? And like, what is it for? And where are the results? Right. And it's always like, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Um, like you just do your bit and then, uh, you know, the next project will come along. And I think it's that like, it actually got me in trouble a lot in my career. It's like, you know, just, uh, just do your, do your work and be quiet. Uh, versus like just being like really confused as to how anybody was paying for what we were doing. So that was like my foray into the agency world originally. It's like, we're fixing incentives. We're doing, I called my agency opponent, which was like, we're different than everyone else. And we're going to change the way this, this, this uh, world works. And we're going to incentivize ourselves differently and, you know, only get paid based on the results we generate. But I mean, you're fighting a losing battle in that situation. Like you're literally up against billion dollar behemoths and your job is to absorb inefficiency. It's like a lot of it doesn't have a lot to do with the results you generate. It's like this person plays golf with that person and they're working with this agency. And we don't know whether it worked or not because we're not really going to measure it. So I think the, the idea of like, the identity of a designer is something that I thought deeply about. And it's like, that isn't just about making something that people look at, right? It's like, I'm not really a designer if I don't understand the problem I'm solving here. And you're not giving me the full problem. You're not like, either we don't have access to it as an agency. Like we don't have the numbers. We don't know what the real problem is here. We're just being told, Hey, middle manager X has decided the solution to problem we don't know about is this go and do it. And that's not, to me, that's not a design exercise. It's like, I don't know, art working or a craft project or something. It's like, yeah. you don't know what the problem is. You can't, um, you can't fix it. So that thing, I think the, the way you describe your identity as a designer, that I think it drove me to get out of what most people think the, the limitations of a designer stop at, you know, what you produce that people can see versus like understanding the problem really deeply. And you have to be able to, you have to have agency over a ton of resources to be able to solve that problem. And the agency environment doesn't give you access to those things. So I think that's where transitioning into products you control and relationships where you, you are, uh, you work with the operator of the business and you say, this is my recommendation. If you're not going to follow it, then I can't even begin to guarantee the efficacy of the work that we're going to do together. So I think um, like really think about what a designer is, has changed that path. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, completely. I, I think often it's not just designers, but often we're all limited by what we think has gone before us and we feel like we have to fold fold into the mold, so to speak, especially as a designer. A designer is a hard-working person, they work long hours, blah, uh, blah, 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 all that all that kind of bullshit. And, and I think that's what's actually happened with you and to an extent with me as well, is that you, you come like, you're snubbed by the design industry because you don't fit into the mold. So I, I, you talk a lot about all kinds of topics and designers don't talk about that. They talk about their work and that's it. And you become outside of the industry. And I think that's the special point because I think that's what you realized 
which brings me on to my next point. You were you've been making visualized value for a couple of months, maybe six months at this point, and you must have mm-hmm. seen that it started working. And what what did you think when you saw that? You were like, right, that this works to to make a market of one of me, basically. No one else can go anywhere else for this. Yeah, I think it's an interesting realization because it then the like you've used this thing with like massive amount of constraint to create something that doesn't have very much constraint at all. So it's kind of paralyzing in some ways where it's like, what do you do now? Right. And there's obvious executions of it, which is like, okay, let's make canvases and sell those. Tried that made like 300 bucks, I think in four months trying to sell canvases. It's like, I think the insight there is like, if you're going to publish these every day, who's going to buy one and hang it on their wall when they get a new one on their screen every six hours or 12 hours, whatever it is. So that failed. We did a book that did all right. And then uh, the, the real interesting part, I think, is like identifying why a certain type of person follows this thing, right? Or what is it that all the people that are consuming this have in common, are interested in, are trying to achieve, that then gives you a way more pointed, way more pointed information on what you should be developing or how you can help people. Like a, a print that goes on the wall, maybe you could argue that that is like someone wakes up and sees that and it shifts the way they approach the day. But I think when you start to see like the long tail effects of somebody consuming, um, consuming the images even for, for six or nine months, which I think packaging, packaging them the way they're packaged made them reach people that otherwise would not have consumed them, right? So I think if you went into your like stoicism corner of Twitter, this is like, this is not new to me. I've seen this before. It's like maybe a sexier way to package it, but it's not introducing a new idea. But I think what fascinated me is that if you package something in a way that it's never been packaged before, you're going to deliver it to people that never would have, would have consumed it before. So that to me is where like, it's very like, it's a huge broad, um, it just creates a broad set of opportunity. And again, like the limitation is how creative you are, how imaginative you are. Um, and, and balancing that with, again, what you're good at and how you want to spend your time and you can commit to something that, you know, is a, say the community, for example, that we run now, that could have been a total disaster if we didn't enjoy doing it. It's like, you've just committed to this thing indefinitely that you are unsure whether or not you want to maintain. So sometimes you just get lucky and pick the right thing. And uh, other times like really introspective, the more time you spend, it's like, really think about what this is for um, and why the like why the people that are consuming what we're putting out there would be interested in this and what it can do for them so I think uh, just looking at it from the other side of like who's on the other side of all this content and what do they need is is what starts to like form the ideas for what you can start to create after that I think what you did really well and there's lots of different ways to describe this, but I really like how Seth Gordon describes it. 
is an X and a Y axis. So you have design on one axis and then you have philosophy on another axis. And it's this idea of creating this X and Y axis that no one, nobody's ever seen in the world before. And by themselves, they're not unique, which is exactly what you just described. Mm. But you put them together and it's fresh and it's new. And that's how you get people on board with it. Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of, like a lot of great thinkers have like coined the different like combinations of these skill sets. And uh, I've been working on a presentation. I'm doing one with uh, David Perel on Thursday about this idea of a personal monopoly yeah. and trying to understand what those unique ingredients are. And I think there's been a few great ways of describing it, but it's really a lot of the themes that have, we've been talking about in this conversation. It's like, there has to be a degree of competence has to be this thing that you're just, you know, you're proficient at, obviously that the market is going to rank you based on your proficiency. And then like the layer on top of that is like people who are competent and curious about something. So they're going to pursue it further than anybody else. Right. It's like, you can be competent and there's a bunch of competition in that world. You can be competent and curious. There's less competition. You could be competent, curious, and then you can introduce like your personality to this mix and you completely shrink the the competition set. So I think yeah. a lot of us get to like maybe halfway between one and two and we're wondering like, why isn't this working? And the answer is to your point, it's not unique. And the longer you like, the longer you withhold those unique ingredients, the more people are, you know, coming around to it and like basically chasing your heels. So leaning into like your personality and what you care about and who you are, it sounds so cliche and ridiculous, but it's like that becomes the market advantage, right? It's like they go to you because you're you, not because of, you know, the information that you're representing necessarily. I mean, to put it, to put it in a really kind of wanky business way, it, it is a consistency of brand and it's a consistency of the way mm-hmm. that you speak, the way that you talk, the way that you write. And that's where the personality comes in. I, I spoke about the idea of authenticity before and I was chatting with it uh, about it with somebody the other day. And we came to the conclusion that it's not necessarily authenticity. It's a consistency and it's, it's you are doing the same thing across multiple platforms because Obviously, the way that me and you are talking now is not the way that we talk over a beer or whatever. So there isn't right. necessarily an authenticity, but there is a consistency. And and when you start to discover a thing that feels like your own way of saying it and then say it across YouTube, podcasts, writing, Twitter, you create this unique bubble that nobody else is inhabiting, which is exactly what you're saying. Yeah, I think another Seth Godin, um, another Seth Godin ism is be a professional. I think he talks a lot about professionalism. It's like yeah. I think people confuse authenticity with like I feel I feel bad today, so I'm going to go on the internet and complain about like how I feel today. It's like that's not necessarily authenticity, right? It's like the idea of um, being consistent with the thing you've defined as what you care about and this whole like notion of productizing yourself or being completely unique. Again, I think there's, there's ways to like 
phrase this, it's going to be more elegant than, than this. So excuse the like brutality of the way I'm going to say it. But it's like, if you are the product, if your content is the product, you have to think about that in the same way as like stuff showing up on your doorstep from Amazon, right? People have an expectation of what they're going to get when they interact with you, your brand, your product. And like, if they open the, you know, they open the box one day and it's like, what the hell is this? Like there's, that's a completely different, that's a complete pivot. Um, and I think a lot of people confuse authenticity with just randomness. And I don't think that those two are the same thing. Uh, so that may be definitely something worth for me, at least spending some time figuring out what the difference is there. But, uh, I don't think authenticity is just blurting out what you feel in the moment. And I think a lot of us, you know, culturally have been conditioned to think that's what authenticity means. It's, it's this dirty word of personal brand, isn't it? It's Mm -hmm. because you've got your Twitter account. I've got my Twitter account. You're at like 90,000 followers or something like that. And you have a consistency. It's not an authenticity. It's a consistency. Mm. And that's very intentional. And because of that, people follow you because you understand that what you're doing really is is building a personal brand. And further down from that, what your Twitter is, is a content medium, just like any other medium mm-hmm. on the planet. It's just like going to read the news somewhere or buying a magazine. What you're doing is creating content. And I think you intrinsically understand that. And it's the word personal brand for a lot of people, I think, where they get scared, where they're, they're like, but I don't want to be a personal brand. I don't want to be, I don't want to make content, quote unquote. They're uncomfortable with the mm-hmm. wording of it. But what they're actually saying with it is that they're kind of just limiting the success. Yeah, I think maybe like, I agree, personal brand has just been completely destroyed as a term and just banded <laughs> around like where it shouldn't have been. But it's, it's, it's like a digital... Um, just your digital self, right? So that's like your personality as it appears on the internet and you're presenting that in different ways in the same way that like you said, if you go to the pub with person X, you're going to behave differently than if you go to a corporate event with a would-be client and this and this and this. And I think people who like understand the internet intrinsically and like are digitally native, they're just like, intrinsically behave certain ways in different places. And, uh, that to me is like, there's a layer to all of this that just becomes about like honing your gut and your instinct and just like the immeasurable stuff that you're never going to be able to codify as a lesson for people or, um, yeah, some, some of these things can't be taught. They really are just, Oh, well that kind of worked. I don't know exactly why, but you know, something from it stores in the back of your brain. And then the next time you're writing something, maybe the, you know, the construct of something or the cadence of something you write is something that you start to, uh, you know, understand resonates and you're subconsciously bringing that into, um, the next thing you write. I think we really like undervalue like gut and instinct and, you know, everybody wants the list of things to follow to, to make, x happen but that i think is like the secret source is the stuff that's just going on in the back of your head that you're never going to be able to articulate to somebody else that's what makes you different and unique right yeah and and i think it's it's accepting that 
you have this unique set of experiences that nobody else has and sees the world in, in like this particular unique ball of knowledge and skill and whatever it is, accepting it, embracing it, and then talking about it. Whereas mm-hmm. I think, probably an interesting thing to talk about, I think people get to the point where they sometimes figure out what they want to say and then they're scared of what people are going to say about them. What what do you think about that? Especially now, was like you've got, what is it, 150,000 bloody followers on visualized mm-hmm. value or something, and then nearly 100,000 on Jack Butcher. How do you feel about the fact of what somebody might say about you? Yeah, I think it's interesting, the idea that... Um, I mean, it's just like an otherworldly thing as well to imagine that that volume of people like <laughs> listening to something you're saying is just an absurd reality, right? It's like Wembley Stadium. You're standing there in the middle of the pitch with a microphone. And you're just and tapping a tweet think, out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a bizarre, like it's a bizarre reality. And I think, um, I think I've been reasonably fortunate for whatever reason in that there hasn't been anything like mega controversial that's happened. There's definitely people who get like rubbed the wrong way about certain (laughs) ideas, but the, I think a lot of it is about intention too. It's like, I think we can generally tell if like what somebody's intentions are, like, am I writing this thing? So I'm trying to rile somebody up or I'm trying to like create controversy out of nowhere. I would hope nobody thinks that about what I'm writing. And a lot of, uh, a lot of the times when, that does happen. I'm not saying it doesn't because it does, but uh, it's like we have, like, I think biologically we're like very unprepared to deal with a lot of this stuff too. It's like, you're just this linear creature living in a environment where you can reach 90,000 people in five seconds. Your like brain is just not evolved to process that. And I think what the equation that I keep in mind is like, you know, well, my intention's good with this thing. Like maybe someone misread it and obviously caveat times a thousand on every (laughs) single thing you say. Uh, And it it generally works out. I think if your intentions are good, um, then uh, very rarely are there, um, you know, irreparable consequences. But again, maybe you'll have to ask me after I say something that really (laughs) upsets somebody. But what do you say about that thing of trying to get over that fear that a lot of people have of just putting anything online? They're scared of doing a Twitter account. They're scared of blogging. They're scared, right. scared of making a video. That's the often often the one. Or making a podcast or whatever. How, how do you get through to them that this is a valuable what? activity? Yeah, I think it's, it depends on what they want. Some people, like, it's a trade that they're not willing to make. So, uh for me, the trade is very like I'm. I'm very okay with um, the potential of someone misunderstanding what I say. If I can reach a thousand people that get value from something or it helps them do something, that's a like. Just thinking about that equation is an important part of it. So, if this thing you said helps one person, then it was worth saying. In the same way that you know, if you're sat with somebody in person, you don't really question. Um, you don't really question answering somebody's question or saying what you think when you sat with someone in person. And we're kind of, you know, we're in such a blurred 
society at this point. It's like in person and digital. It's like all very like uh, wishy washy, and there's no real line to separate the two. So it's kind of like a. Um, I think it's always like way in the trade off, and obviously the first reps of it are the most brutal. Like when I started this thing three three and a half years ago and trying to get clients for my ad agency when I just really had no clue what I was doing. I just like basically fallen into this thing by way of referral of an old client. I was like on Facebook blasting out these updates to like kids I went to school with 10 years ago. And like, what are you doing? Like I went to the pub once this guy was like, are you a motivational speaker now? (laughs) I was like, no, I'm just trying to get clients for my graphic design business. He's like, what? Uh, so it's just this weird, uh, there's going to be this weird like breakthrough patch, right? Where it's like you, you have to transition from the people that you're just surrounded by as a function of where you live and where you went to school and who your family is and all of those things. And I think this is true in most of the people I speak to's case that the people they want to work with and collaborate with and make things with are normally not those same group of people. So the really painful part is the the things that you have to make to start to attract the group of people that you do want to work with. And there's always going to be like that gully in between all the people you know and all the people you want to know. Um, so essentially keeping your eye on the prize there and like the payoff being getting to where you want to go and meeting the people that are probably struggling with the same things you are is... Uh, small price to pay because you forget about it once you get to, you know, once you're surrounded by people that are experiencing the same things. And I think it's probably becoming less, um, like less of a taboo by the day. Like I, uh, was picking up some electronic stuff from the shop the other day. And there's like these YouTube kits in, uh, it's called Best Buy over here. It's like the PC world equivalent. And, uh, you know, people get the ring light, the camera, the mic, like young kids, like all sorts of people picking up this stuff. It's like, it's just becoming normal to, especially with what's happened in the last year, this is like, how do you start to move a portion of your life onto the internet? Cause so many people are doing it and a lot of, lot of economic opportunity and social connection and all of these things, you know, regardless of how you feel about it. Um, philosophically it's happening. And I think like the taboo of it is really shifting massively by the day. But like you say, the sooner you start, the faster you find those people, the faster you can, you know, start working on the things that you want to be working on. I think, um, I think it's a trade worth making, but it's definitely a, a, a choice for the individual. I think I first really realized it last year. So when I, I, I joined Visualize Value, I met you, and I, I saw so much of you in me, because you came from the UK, you came from a small town in the UK, you are now living this amazing life in, in the US, in, in New York, and I I saw a lot of what you did, you were a designer, you'd been a designer a similar amount of time to me. So mm-hmm. I, I sat and thought a lot about that, about what, what's different here, why why did Jack go to the US? Why have I stayed in Barnsley? And I thought a lot about it. And, and why have I not collaborated with people all around the world? Why have I built an agency primarily working with local clients? And I think ultimately 
it comes down to this small town mentality, doesn't it? It's that there's two mm-hmm. ways, two ways of thinking now, and and I'm using the town as a metaphor here because this is basically a small internet mentality. You can either think I can work with the people that are within 30 miles of me, and that includes working on the internet as well. I can work with these like localized clients, and I can target localized clients or, or whatever you're doing, or I can stop doing the networking where I'm sat, sat in a room with 30 people and just open up this huge, amazing door where there's millions of potential clients. And mm-hmm. you, you're no longer fighting on a basis of locality. You're fighting on your skill and you're fighting on the, your ability to promote yourself to them. That was a massive shift for me. Um, and I think ultimately it comes a little bit down to that, that I thought, well previous to 2020 i don't need to promote myself online because i'm only talking to people who i'm seeing at networking events or whatever it's like it's a really silly mentality to have thinking about it now um but it was where i was at so i think it comes into that some maybe thinking maybe not thinking small that maybe that makes it sound a bit too negative but thinking too local i think maybe that's it Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think uh, I think talent. There's there's a million, you know, probably a couple of million designers in the world that are more talented than me, maybe more than that. It's like I'm like, I would say reasonably talented. I put my hours in. I can like get a result for a client. Uh, but the difference is being willing to put your work out there. It's like yes, I was talking about what did I write on this? It's like the like the only way the world knows what you're capable of is a function of what you put out into the world, right? It's that those are the two mentalities. It's like, I'm going to be discovered for some reason. Like I'm just going to sit around, wait. And eventually this amazing opportunity is going to tap me on the shoulder versus uh, I'm going to put all this work. I'm just going to brute force my way to find people that need what I have. And, uh, the, there seems to be a correlation here between like the more talented people are, the more averse they are, honestly, to yeah. promoting themselves and pushing for opportunity because I think the idea that I deserve opportunity because of my talent is the conditioning that has happened. And in some cases, maybe that's true, right? Maybe a recruiter reaches out to you and is skimming through Behance and looking for your portfolio and, and this is specific to design, obviously, but um, I think it's those really are the two mentalities. It's like, what do I have to lose by increasing the surface area of my luck, my work? And uh, that is the difference. There's just, uh, it's also, there's an immediate downside to it as well. And I think that stops a lot of people doing it as well. It's like, it's immediately embarrassing and like, you're not going to get the result on day zero, day one, maybe even day a hundred. So yeah, it, it's very easy to justify, you know, that being a path that you don't want to expose yourself to. And you know, uh, it is ultimately your decision whether you want to do that or not. Um, But I've just, I've worked with hundreds of incredibly talented people in my life and what they're doing now is like if they'd have just started sharing what they're capable of, like publishing their point of view, the optionality they would have as a function of that is just massive. 
Um, I think, yeah, there's, I think you shared something in the Slack. Was that yesterday? The article about like people growing their audience and that being a, like, uh, you know, people getting tired of the tactics that they see people using to grow their audience and this being this vehicle for optionality. Some parts of it I agree with and other parts, I think, um, if you're, if you're really using it as a, as a like documentation of your evolution, like sharing your craft, talking about your perspective, even selfishly, like being able to look back on this in 10 years is going to be incredible. I think uh, the idea of um, doing something and either saving it on a hard drive on your desk or posting it to a place on the internet where potentially thousands of people are going to see it, in some cases, obviously there are uh, like legal concerns there, but in the majority of cases, why would you not do that? It's crazy to me. Well, I, I've been a designer for 15 years and I was one of those designers. I, you know, I, I ran a fairly successful agency, but I wouldn't put my stuff online. And then in 2020, I put a small version of what I do online, making like daily images, like, like you do, um, like witty, funny type images, and within, I I remember, I think it was in within two or three weeks, I had people asking me to make them for them, and that mm-hmm. was the first time in my life that I'd ever been recognised online for my skill, and I'd been doing it for fourteen years, and I just sat there thinking, Incredible. I just sat there thinking. Why the fuck has it took me so long to do this? Uh, right, right. Yeah, it's incredible. Uh, and and a lot of the, even when you were doing it, it's people circulating it among people that can already do it, right? That's the weird thing about a lot of these communities. <laughs> it's like designers publish work for other designers to look at. It's like, yeah. they're not going to hire you, mate. They can do it themselves. They're going to, they're just probably going to just take what you've done and sell it to someone else. So like, it's the absolute opposite function of uh there's an arbitrage opportunity right like you go onto somewhere like twitter and i don't know everybody's talking about technology venture capital or something like that you inject a skill into that environment that those people are not familiar with everybody's like oh we can like i've never seen that before i could see how i could use that to you know increase um the reach of the work that we're doing or the way our company operates. And I think that that like those tiny little arbitrage opportunities, they seem crazy, but there's, um, there's just a huge amount of opportunity just taking something you're already doing and introducing it to people who have never seen it before. Yeah. I've tweeted about this a few times and I haven't been able to word it correctly. So I'm probably not, I'm going to probably butcher it again here. Um, this idea of niche versus non-niche, or, or rather making something very, very small in its purpose. So take visualized value, for example. What happens, I've discovered, when you really, really, really tightly focus something and making, for an, for example, an image every day, like visualized value, what people do to that is they they widen the niche. They look at it and go, I see how this could work in like anywhere. But if you do, Mm -hmm. if you reverse it and do it the other way around, if you're just online saying generic things, saying, you know, I'm a designer, I've done this, 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 and this, and this, nobody can see an application anywhere. 
It's like this really weird reverse niche thing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's come back comes back to the problem, right? It's like the I think the consistency of the problem you're solving is what people recognize there. It's like uh if you're just publishing work as a designer, it's like here's 20 different projects I worked on in all these different areas for all these different people. There's no consistent like epiphany that people have when they look at your work. They're just like, oh, this guy's a good designer. Yeah. Versus like every day you see something that someone published, you're like, wow, I understand that concept better now because of that illustration. And then the next day, wow, I understand that concept now because of that illustration. So people, I think, leverage the device that they saw solve a problem effectively. And this is like just an inherently human thing. I think it's like, you know, monkey see monkey do. It's like, that's a cool device to solve a problem. I'm going to take that and I'm going to solve my own problem with that thing. I think the same way, like any like technical innovation spreads is probably, you know, there's some communication innovation happening there that like even design patterns start to take on that. Um, It's like, um, you know, the like flat design landing pages, like the, you know, pastel color, like here's the aesthetic that new startups use to sell their product. Someone sees that and it's like, oh, that's cool. You know, maybe it was just software businesses to begin with, but then it's like our makeup business, we're going to use that, that same pattern. And then, you know, this like boutique car parking service, we're going to use that pattern. I think um, like elegantly solves a problem and people just inherently like, borrow solutions um if you're if you're not demonstrating your consistent ability to solve a problem like you know in a design portfolio that doesn't have a focus that's where i think you know we swirl as individuals as well i was definitely there for years and years and years just like why aren't people hiring me like this stuff looks cool it's like yeah so does everybody else's stuff yeah i i think um this is this is where I, I I try to now I've seen the power of doing a daily portfolio like a visualized value thing like a really small thing that you can do in ten minutes every day and publish that's a way to show your thinking rather than your skill necessarily I I wouldn't go back to doing a generic portfolio in any other way but one thing that I that I've run up against with some designers and I thought this a little bit as well is oh, interesting to get your take on this. Um, when you make a visualized value image, it might take you 10 or 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And you've made that. And do you feel that that cheapens your work because you've put it out for free and you did it in 10 minutes and you might have even screen uh, screenshotted it as well and done a little video do you do you think that that cheapens your work or do you think that elevates your work? I, personally, like, I wouldn't do it if I thought it cheapened it. So I I think the this comes back to the, I think what we talked about before is the abundance versus scarcity mentality. Like, just to go back and simplify that, you know, I'm, I don't need to publish online, it's going to come and find me or I, don't, I yeah. can't put my work out there, someone's going to copy it or, I think um, it's just like an inherent understanding of like how markets work. It's like, I'm going to create way more opportunity than I even know what to do with. If people like this stuff, like there's a thousand different ways. Like we said at the start, if you can 
if you can gather a group of people around an idea that you are like the curator of, you then have agency to, you know, create whatever you want with that. And you, um, like the market will judge what you create based on the attention that you've brought together. Right. And it comes down to the distribution piece again. It's like, if you stop, if you stop distributing your ideas in the world that moves at the pace ours does now, your opportunity dries up. So it's a, the harsh reality of it is if you're like a solo practitioner or a tiny business, then your contact with the market has a huge impact on your success, right? So if I was to put something out every three months, it's like people will have forgotten about me in three months time. Uh, So unless you think every business, if you're working on something that comes out in three month intervals, solving for that, like, what is the, you know, thing we do every couple of days to keep contact with the market? How does like, how do we um, stay relevant? There's, there's definitely like, it's definitely two different muscles to think about that. But even, um, you know, even if we miss three, four days on publishing on a visualized value, the momentum just craters. Yeah. It's a, like, it's a really, um, I don't even know how I feel about it philosophically. It's like, where does this end up in five, 10 years time? Right. Where it's like, now you need to publish something every like hour or half an hour. Entropy, Um, isn't it? Yeah. What is going on with uh, the direction we're heading in? I'm not sure. Um, But yeah, I think, I think demonstrating the, like the longevity of the idea every single piece we publish providing it's like well thought out and well designed should be like a string to the bow, right? It should be, it should create additional equity. Um, And I think this, there's another little nuanced piece where it's like, depending on how, depending on the size of the audience, depending on how many people you're talking to judgment becomes more and more and more important with time. So there's maybe a consistency that you go through, um, in your first three, six, nine, twelve months, to figure out your voice, what you like producing, what you're good at, and then you know when you're when you reach critical mass to some extent, where you have like uh, a bunch of people that are interested in what you're doing, maybe don't like tweet out every five minute brain fart that you have because there's way more upside to thinking critically about what you're gonna write. Um, but but that first part is still like the muscle that you need to like strengthen to get to that point. So there's no like exact answer, but I do think um, this is a Navalism. It's like the more leverage you have, the more, the more your judgment comes into play. Right. Yeah. I, I think it's, it's this on a wider sense about publishing every day. It's this idea of overloading the algorithm. It's, it's the only hack that you've got with any algorithm across LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, the only available hack that you can reliably rely on is to just produce so much content that it can't be missed. And if it gets missed on one day, they see it the next day, or it's in somebody's notifications or whatever. It's the reason why I tweet 10 times a day still and why I'm so prolific because people who are prolific... Um, 
like what you said earlier, they almost force their way to the top because they're just mm-hmm. everywhere all of the time and you just cannot ignore them. And I think ultimately that becomes a differentiator, the fact that you are online all the time and like VV's publishing every day, you're never out of somebody's mind. You're always there. Yeah, I think it's also um, a, like the other consideration to make is how many customers do you need for your thing? It's like if you... I don't know if you're charging 50 grand a month to a single consultant client and you want to make 500 grand a year, like maybe you can get away with publishing an incredibly well researched white paper every quarter. And if a thousand people read that, you need one of them to pay you. It's an entirely different model to if you sell a $50 product and you need a thousand people a year to pay you. So I think, um, reverse engineering this out of the objectives of the business is another way to think about it. But the consistency element in the beginning is what creates, uh, I guess what gives you the opportunity to consider what direction to go in, you know? Would you agree though, that even if you're making something every three months, the daily work comes in promoting that. So you're tweeting every day. Agreed. 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 Um, I think, I think there's like, you know, the sawdust principle is like, if you're making something, um, if you're making something valuable and publishing something every three months, or even like shipping a physical product every three months, you're doing something every day that is interesting, different. There's a piece of your process that part of the world is completely blind to and probably interested in. So it's about finding a, you know, a sustainable way to get that out. Hmm. I think one one final question I want to ask, and I'll, I'll ask some of these Twitter questions if you've got time, mm-hmm. um, is is this idea of how long do you wait? So you, you're publishing every day. This touches on a couple of the questions as well. You're publishing every day. How do you know whether it's working? And how long would you wait before something pops off basically before you start getting thousands of followers or or whatever your metric is. Well, I think to go back to an earlier point, it's like the, it's why I'm, I'm, I'm interested in explaining the transition that I made personally, because I had this service engine on the back end of the product. So you have like, a very low threshold of people you need to convince to keep your lights on and all of those, like, you know, the, the, the bare necessities. So you just need one client to pay you for design consulting work. So I think having, um, having these kind of stages of what is the function that this content is performing. And if the first function is, you know, finding someone to work one-on-one with to do this for personally, then um, you can get there a lot quicker than getting a a hundred or a thousand people to pay for a product. So um, I think there's, we could go into a lot of detail on this, but the, the, like the open network effect of Twitter, I think is uh, if you're doing good work, it will happen. It's like, it's a function of seeking out the people that are 
working in the same industry as you or like parallel industries, um, you know, being genuinely curious and, um, you know, I wouldn't recommend following any like spam this whenever you see person X tweet something, but putting your work out there, like putting your unique point of view out there with a, um, initially an option to work with you directly. I think we've touched on this a a bunch of times, but I think this is again, the difference between the thing that you can produce daily versus the, like the showcase of the like depth of your ability. So for visualized value, that's the difference between one graphic and then this like 20 slide visual narrative that we can produce. So you have the like attention getting um, vehicle, which is your daily publishing. And then you have like the service or the, what you're capable of articulated in a lot more detail, which is, makes it a lot easier for someone to make a decision to work with you. So again, that's a packaging thing on the back end. It's like, okay, I've got all these people's attention. Now what, like, what do I want to do from what can I help people with? That's like, I think the, the order of those two things can swap and change and there's a lot of uh, there's a there's a lot of nuance to that too. But I would, if you can touch on a problem, or if you can like get people to agree that um, they are experiencing problem X, that really to me is like the signal that you just keep going. Um, and you know, a great I learned this great. Um, I say trick. I don't like using the word trick, but you, you know, Quora, the, uh, the yeah. platform where people ask questions. And I think SEO is another good example of this. It's like Twitter is the great platform. It can like, you can like start a conversation, join a conversation, but there are also other platforms where you can look at intent based searches, searches for what people are actually struggling with and find a problem that is persistent in the market and then start talking to the people that have that problem. So, um, I think if if this thing you're doing is making you better at your craft, then there's there's no reason to give up, right? There's no reason to stop. It's yeah. uh, it's just a byproduct of the work you're already doing. It's a long-winded way to say it, but that like when I was in the when I was in that mode of like trying stuff, putting it out, and seeing if someone would buy it, it was um, it's kind of like chasing the outcome from the wrong end versus just trying to really hone my skill set in public. And then that is, I think it, um, there's probably some dating analogy here, but it's like the more desperate you look, the less likely anybody's going to come and approach you. Right. It's just like, I'm sitting over here doing my work and um, you know, this is the problem that I'm passionate about. People see that you've solved it. They're going to approach you. Yeah, it's that difference between just showing what you're doing versus saying, call now or email me now, yeah, 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 yeah. availability yeah, yeah, now. Exactly. Uh, I, I think a, a really important point you touched on about when do you decide to give up or even when do you, you decide to start is this idea of why. Why are you doing it? What is the purpose of doing it? That's a really important point because I got this wrong when I first started I always say I started taking Twitter seriously in 2020 because I had this idea of writing 10 tweets per day and I got it wrong when I first started. I was just writing 10 tweets a day 
for no reason, just as a habit. And it wasn't until a few months down the line when I started getting, uh, you know, some signal on some stuff that I might have wrote and you start to narrow that down that I realized, oh, I should have just been talking about design all of this time. Right. And then as soon as you do that, everybody takes notice because it's the thing it's the thing that I know. It's the thing that I've been doing for a long time. So every, so everything all of a sudden lines up to the same thing. So you're saying the same things as you're doing. But that only happened to me because I, I said the same thing. Why am I doing this? Well, I want to, you know, get design work. That's ultimately the goal. I want to push stuff mm-hmm. to Genius Division. And when I realized that, it changed my approach. So I think inevitably you'll give up if it's this idea of just doing it, not that I'm against doing things for fun, but if you're just doing it for no purpose, if there isn't an intention behind it, you will give up. But I think if there is a reason behind it, you're going to carry on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a weird truism that like law of attraction or some odd thing happening in the background where you can't chase the thing directly. It's like, you just, uh, put out what you're thinking, put out what you're working on. Um, try and be as like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's just like trying to be as empathetic to people that haven't experienced what you've experienced as possible is I think the way you, um, produce the most valuable, um, content. It's like, I know this to be true because I've been doing this for eight years, but what were all the things that I experienced that got me here and how can I start to unpack that for other people? Uh, It's cheesy to say it, but it's providing value, isn't it? Indeed. Right. Let me ask, there's a juicy question here. Um, So Nick asked, what has been the negative aspects of leveraging the internet and building so public? Yeah. So there's a few like, yeah, there's a few little bits with that. I think, um, get the odd, um, DM of like, we've been fairly public with some of our like revenue numbers, which is, Mm. I think powerful proof for some of the, um, the things that we've been practicing, but, it's, there's downside to that. Obviously, if people know that you have, uh, you're making money, there's requests that pop into your inbox related to that. So that's all we need to say there. And then I think the um, the other side of it is is definitely the the there's an element of pressure that you feel to deliver. Uh, I think mm. that is motivating for me personally. Um, you know, there's. X thousand people that subscribe to your email, for example, it's like, wow, somebody's like giving you five minutes of their time a week. They're never going to get that back. And uh, they're expecting you to like respect that. So I think um, not necessarily a negative piece, but it's like, again, creating this long-term responsibility. You can't walk away from this thing. And again, that's why it's so important to, keep it aligned with the stuff you're interested in uh, talking about. If you're going to do it as an individual, because you are um, like building relationships at scale. And it's the same way you have, you know, you make 
commitments to people you would meet in person. Like you have to uphold those commitments. So I think uh, things that you commit to in public create a level of accountability that you have to live up to. Not necessarily a negative uh, side effect, but can be very negative if you don't think deeply about what you're committing to. Mm. This is a good question as well from Ian. Uh, I'm going to reword it slightly so you can instantly answer it. So think about a permissionless apprenticeship example and say you wanted to transition from being where you are now to being a lawyer. How would you use permissionless apprentice to become a lawyer or become known in that industry? Sure. Great question. I think um, I would find somebody on Twitter probably who's like, prominent lawyer uh, or represents a law firm that I want to work at and then look at like cases or their specialty or the things that they are involved in currently. So maybe you say um, corporate law, like I'm interested in becoming a corporate lawyer. I would like look at the most famous corporate law cases in the United States. And then I would find like, the ways to, based on my skill set, the ways to visibly document some of those legal concepts that, you know, were um, instrumental in determining the outcome of those cases. So I think I would use my skill set, kind of ingest what they do best, and then like spit out a deliverable that combines those two things. That would be how I would do it. And just publish like, you could also get into the news cycle that way too, where, um, you know, you could say case X was resolved this way. This is the legal precedent that made that possible. Um, and, you know, here's a new way to present that, a new way to look at that, like make that easier to understand for um, a, a wider audience. I have no plans to become a lawyer though. <laughs> yeah, it's that idea of taking something that already exists and packaging it in a way that's, simpler to understand but also helps more people isn't it it's, it's really powerful yeah i'll i'll finish on this question because i think it's a good one and you've probably been asked this a million times so what does vv look like in three years yes i have been asked that a few times the <laughs> you can say it, it doesn't matter <laughs> the, yeah no the interesting thing is um I found it to be a bit detrimental to like project out that far. I think, um, again, what the optionality of staying small and like operating lean gives you is the real ability to, um, you don't need, you don't need to use a, a driving analogy. You don't need your full beams on, right? You don't need to see like 9,000 yards ahead of you. You need to see, like 50 100 and like keep optimizing for the things that you know you're going to have the energy to do in the short term like i've last year i I probably gave an answer to this question that was completely different like in the middle last year it's like it's going to be a huge media company there's going to be all of these like it's going to have a massive audience and we're going to work with this person and this person and i think you know maybe that's the case but what i've started to realize is if you don't follow the like cues that you can personally sustain and those things change, maybe other people have a way more consistent 
uh, you know, pull than I do, but I like, there are some whims that I like, Oh, should I follow that? Maybe it could go in this direction. Maybe it could go in that direction. And we'll run little experiments to see if like, you know, maybe that is a, a viable thing. Then we would double down on it. So I think the, like, I guess the, the kind of non-answer for that is like, we, yeah, we, we'll just, we just try things and if they work, we'll double down on them. If they don't, we'll discard them. I think the speed at which things are moving now is, uh, it's just super hard to predict where things are going to be, what, yeah. what um you know what's going to be most valuable to people in three years and i think what we'll stick to though is like what are the principles that continue to guide us and continue to like help us um you know build the type of business we want to build meet the type of people we want to meet that really informs what the product becomes and what the you know what the business stands for um just to give like one tactical example a few people have reached out about doing like collaborative um, we're going to illustrate a few more books. Um, maybe we'll do a few collaborative like education products with a couple people this year and see how those play out. And maybe that will become like a business line. Maybe that'll be something we do as a service. Um, but again, all depends on whether or not we like doing it and we can sustain it. Well, the, the follow-up bit to that it, that Chris asked was, what 20% of tasks provide 80% of the value of VV? And I think you've worked it out already. That's why you can make that decision. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. I think um, the the other amazing thing about not operating from a completely tactical place where you have to like refresh what you're doing all the time. So, you know, if you run a media business that is like related to the news in any way, every day you have to wake up and write what's happening in industry X. That is like, you are tied to that process every single day when you have like you say when you have certain things that can create exponential outcomes in the exact same amount of time you just get to like your thinking is way more of an exponent than like daily action to go back to that idea of like judgment is such a massive multiplier at scale like a good a great um article on value app could take a couple of weeks to write, but that could be, you know, it could be 20 X the outcome of um, writing 30 tweets a day for two weeks. I think what's, what's powerful about the situation you're in is that you've got all of these assets that are all yours that you can now, you know, thousands of tweets, thousands of images, thousands of uh, pieces of content, office hours, all this kind of stuff. You've got all of this content that you can now choose to turn to whatever you want. And I think that really shows the value of and the power of making content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. I think um, the like it far exceeds even my ability to do it. Such a huge archive of stuff that you could really come back. And this is another like personal preference thing. It's like maybe this is a design thing. It's way harder to go back than it is to make new stuff. So uh, someone with a different skill set than me, I think would, would even, you know, be able to create a ton more value from that than I have. But um, to your point, like revisiting that stuff, just fleshing out ideas and making the whole like ecosystem more well thought out and more connected and uh, like, 
diving into, yeah, maybe there is an, an illustration that could turn into a YouTube video and an article that you have a really like strong signal on the front end. Like people want to know more about this or people value this little mini insight. Um, that to me is the 80, 20, like the best example of the 80, 20 is once you have like critical mass on the front end, you can really evaluate what is going to resonate before you spend a ton of time on it. So the, the 20% is probably what we put out publicly first that gives you the signals on what you should spend time on, on that like longer track of work that we talked about earlier in the conversation. Well, there's been a million podcasts where you've spoken about how that's informed all the products that you've made where first product how to visualize value teaching you how to make vv images came from a tweet exchange with i think it was david perel or something like that wasn't it yeah 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 that that was a thing that took two minutes for you to just say do you want this that was the 20 percent. that was the like 0.1 percent effort wasn't it to make right 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 or 800 times back what you what you put into it and then with the Bill once sell twice, it just started. I think I remember seeing it as just a tweet that you kept tweeting over and over initially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think you, you've already got it all. Yeah, we'll see, we'll, uh, we'll see what happens this year. But I think um, it's nice to be able to go and dial things in as well. You know, just just like it was a fast year of growth last year. So, you know, going back and like cleaning up the front end and, you know, just, just uh, doing a bit of housekeeping for the first half of the year. And then uh, you could be way more considerate about what comes next. Yeah. A bit of cleaning. Exactly. Uh, I, I'm going to call it there. Cause that's an hour and a half. That's gone bloody ages. Um, you've got 30 seconds. I'll ask you one last question. Uh, Yeller asked, What's your favorite pizza? Uh, Domino's. Domino's? Domino's thin crust. Domino's thin crust. <laughs> I make it myself. Uh, or I c- configure it myself. What do I have? Chicken and bacon. Domino's, mate. Thin crust. I'm a uh, Philistine, as they would say. I was going to say, you're in New York, in, in the like, best pizza places in the world. And you uh, in Domino's. New York, Joe's, Joe's on 6th and Bleecker is the best pizza in New York. <laughs> Nice. Man, it's been such a pleasure. Uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Thanks for your time and for putting up with this hour and a half. Um, yeah, and speaking no, again. That was great, mate. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. We'll uh, we'll be knocking to each other in, on another window <laughs> in Chrome shortly, I'm sure. Yeah, see you soon. All right, mate, bye.